Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and we finish up this morning, Lord willing, this parable of the soils. If you're just dropping here, uh, sort of in the middle of it, I apologize. Uh, But last time we took a look at the first two, namely the roadside soil and the rocky soil. And so this morning we'll finish it out, Lord willing, with uh, the thorny soil and what is called the good soil. If you have been in church any length of time, you are no doubt familiar with this parable. Um, This is, as we've been seeing, a parable about the heart. Uh, These are four soils which represent four different kinds of hearts and therefore four different receptions to the gospel. And so it is a very important passage because, as I've been saying, this describes every single one of us this morning. Uh, Every single one of us finds herself in some way within one of these soils. And so just by way of introduction, let me read the passage for you to remind us of this teaching of Jesus, and we'll be primarily focused on verses 14 through 15 this morning. Let me set the context by beginning here in verse 4. So here's what Luke records of the ministry and teaching of Jesus under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, when a large crowd was coming together and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said to you, It has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. But the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but these have no firm root, and so they believe for a while, but in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked out with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. As we've been learning, many assume that Jesus spoke in parables because they think it's how he could become an effective teacher. They think it's how he could relate to certain kinds of people or contextualize his message. 
But as we saw here from verse 10, we know that the primary purpose of parables is not actually to make things clearer, but the primary purpose is to hide and conceal the truth from those who do not want it. And that is very important to remember. This is the first parable in the Gospel of Luke, and so he is very careful here to include this statement of Jesus as to the purpose of his own parables. And so there is always an intended spiritual meaning behind the parables of Jesus, and so never does he explain the spiritual meaning and the spiritual application to the crowds, this group of neutral, half-hearted religious followers, but he does reveal the meaning to his disciples alone. And so we see that in this passage in particular. First half of the passage, to give you the structure, Jesus, remember, gives the parable to the crowd in verses 4 through 8. Verses 9 through 10, we then see him give the explanation as to the purpose of the parables. And then in 11 through 15, we see him then explain the meaning of this parable now to his disciples in private. And so last time we looked at his explanation of the first two, namely the roadside soil and the rocky soil. And we saw that the roadside soil was a a reference to a person with a very hard heart. This is a person who, when they hear the message of salvation and they hear the message of Jesus Christ and they are given the gospel, it immediately bounces off of them like seed falling on concrete. There is no softness within their heart to allow that seed of the gospel to penetrate even in the least. And so they immediately reject that message. They have no interest. They have no desire in hearing divine truth or the message of the gospel. And so their sin has hardened their heart. There is no softness. There is no inclination within them to receive or reflect upon the truth of what God has said. And so they possess a very hard heart. But then second, we saw his explanation of the rocky soil. This is the rocky soil, and we saw that this was a description of the shallow heart. This is a person who does receive the gospel and also with joy. Remember that key prepositional phrase there in verse 13. This is a person who hears the message of Jesus and hears the way of true salvation. And so at the announcement of the gospel, they receive it with tremendous joy And so we spent some time examining that kind of person. This is a person whose response to the message of salvation was one of superficiality. This was a person who had an emotional experience or emotional response, and so they received that message of Jesus. They were all in on that message. In fact, these are the ones who can typically point you to a time in which they experienced or felt the presence of God in some special way or what they think was perhaps a supernatural way, and so it was a very emotional experience for them. But the problem is that it was entirely superficial. Jesus describes this person as one whose roots do not grow down deep. They may have had an experience at some point, but the roots of their faith, so to speak, never grow down deep enough into a right understanding of the Word of God. And so in times of testing, as Jesus says, or due to the hardship that being faithful to the commands of Christ now costs them, they immediately fall away because they have no true conviction. They're not held solid by a deep understanding of the Word of God, and so they have very little conviction over what is ultimate truth. And so these are ones who sprang up with great joy and had all kinds of 
passion over the ideas of Jesus and his gospel and this newfound faith. And they might even remain for a long period of time. And because, as Jesus says here, they remain, notice, for a while. But the bellwether of an authentically true faith is when that day of trial comes and a person now needs to suffer for that message or endure a hardship in a way that honors Jesus Christ. The question is, will they remain? Will they truly conform their life to what Jesus requires of them, or will they profess him in word alone? And because there is no person willing to suffer for something they don't really believe, there is no person willing to endure hardship for a cause for which they come to realize is not what they actually signed up for. And so when that day comes, Jesus says that this type of person will quickly fade away. And so we saw that true saving faith is not something merely emotional. In fact, emotions have zero bearing on the nature of true faith. In fact, we saw pure emotion may in fact be indicative of false conversion. Emotions are not what sustain you. Emotions are not what ground you in times of trial and temptation. Rather, it is the truth and the truth alone that sustains a person in that day of difficulty. It is a conviction over truth that will guide you through those rough waters of trial. And so Jesus says, do not be impressed with a person who responds with immediate joy, for that is never the sign of authentic conversion. And so these are two types of responses to the gospel. If you weren't here for those, I would recommend that you can go back and listen to those and get a fuller understanding of what those two soils are actually describing But this is a parable about receptivity to the gospel. There are many forms and many different responses to the message of Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing is describing what those responses may look like. And so again, every single one of us fall into one of these four categories. First three soils are three different kinds of bad soils, so to speak. These are different ways in which the unbeliever may respond to the gospel. And then the fourth soil, which is the good soil, is a description of the true believer. And so really, you only have two kinds of people in the world. You have the believer and you have the unbeliever. You have the one who accepts Jesus and follows him on his own terms and in terms of what he has defined following him is to look like. And then you have the one who ultimately rejects him. And so there are different ways in which the unbeliever will ultimately reject the gospel or eventually fall away, which of course is why Jesus here describes three different forms of this bad soil. And so some reject it immediately, like the hardened soil or the roadside soil. Others are a bit more soft to it and even respond at first with great joy and enthusiasm like we see with the shallow or superficial rocky soil. But there is still one more way in which a person will respond to the gospel and yet ultimately prove themselves to not be a true disciple. And that is described for us here this morning in verse 14 with Jesus' explanation of the thorny soil. And so we're going to take a look at this one this morning as well as the good soil. But what I want you to notice with these bad soils is that there is a relative progression that comes with receptivity to the gospel. Notice the roadside soil rejected it immediately, and so there really was no reception. The rocky soil or shallow soil had some softness toward the gospel, and so it was able to lodge into their hearts a little bit. And so this one 
appears to be the real deal at first and even remain for a little while, as he says, and get excited about the things of God. But in time of trial and hardship, on account of the gospel, they ultimately fall away. And so now with this thorny soil, this is a person who seems to believe even longer than the shallow soil. It shows a lot of hope. They have a more persevering kind of belief in the gospel, and because they even presumably weather the trial and endure well through times of trial, and so they don't immediately fall away on account of hardship. And so this is a person who, as a result, may have a very great confidence or great assurance in their faith, and yet this will be a person whose ultimate defection is therefore due to a different cause. In fact, it is a much subtler cause and deceptive cause and one that is even slow and oftentimes unseen, which in the end is what makes it so deadly. And so this is what we will look at this morning. And so look with me, if you would, now to verse 14, where Jesus gives an explanation of the thorny soil. He states, verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard and as they go on their way, are choked out with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life, and therefore bring no fruit to maturity. As I said, the soils are a description of the state of the heart. person's receptivity to the gospel has nothing to do with the sower, that is, it has nothing to do with the one who casts the seed. And so this is not about technique, this is not about your winsomeness to evangelize, it's not about your ability to craft an argument or rhetorically convince a person of what is ultimate truth. And so this is not about the sower, but this is also not about the seed. That is, it is never about the content of the gospel and its power to save a person. And so we don't seek to help the message in some way. We don't seek to alter the message or repackage it to make it more acceptable somehow. Rather, the elements of life reside within the seed itself. And so we just need to be able to cast that seed and not hinder its power that already resides there within the seed itself. And so again, this is all about the state of the soil. It is always and every single time about the nature, condition of a person's heart. And so this is about the state of the heart. What is the condition of the heart in terms of its hospitality and receptivity of what we call here the gospel? And so Jesus now says with his third soil that a heart may not be completely hardened like the first soil, heart may not even be shallow like the second soil, and therefore be able to stand strong during times of persecution and trial. But there is a kind of heart that abiding within it are all kinds of subtle and unseen impurities. That is to say that this is a kind of heart that within it reside a noxious and mixed element that given time will show that heart to be what it truly is. And so this is a description of the worldly heart. This is the worldly heart. There are a lot of people who hear the message of Jesus and are even willing to endure a certain amount of suffering and persecution on account of that message. They will stand strong for the gospel. They will fight for the name of Jesus and what Jesus represents they will be loud and vocal for the truth and even be willing to go to battle for that truth, whether it's against false teachers within the church or it's some kind of external pressure coming from outside of the church. And so there are many people who will not compromise on the truth. 
They will not bow down to culture. They are not afraid to defend the faith from wolves or aberrant forms of theology that creep into the church. And yet lurking within their hearts, as Jesus says, is something just as deadly, which is what makes this kind of heart so deceptive. And so this is a kind of person whose pressure to defect from the faith is not some kind of external reality coming upon them from the outside, like false teaching or cultural pressures, whatever it may be. It could even be persecution or trial or hardship. But this is a defection that results ultimately due to some kind of bent or iniquity that is already residing within them. Now, that is something that is true for all three of these bad soils. A rejection of the faith or a defection from the faith is always and every single time a result of something that is residing within the heart. But this is one that is very prominently seen in that regard. And so what Jesus describes here is a very good illustration of what happens when a person begins to feel that subtle but ever-growing allure toward the world, which in our context here in wealthy America is unbelievably difficult to discern, and because we swim daily in that veritable water of wealth and materialism and tremendous comfort, And so this is one that is not only difficult to discern in our context, but perhaps what makes it all the more challenging for us is that this is also one that is unbelievably easy for us to justify. And notice again, this isn't something that resides outside of the soil, but this is something that lives within the soil. That is to say that this is something that already resides within the heart. And so he describes the imagery here as, notice, noxious weeds and thorny plants that slowly creep up and begin to choke out that fruit of faith. What is so important to observe about this particular soil is that notice, the assumption here is that a certain amount of good fruit has actually been produced. Because what is there to choke out if fruit has not yet been produced? And so since good fruit in some capacity has been produced, then your only conclusion is that you are an authentically saved person, which of course is what makes this kind of soil so difficult to discern from the good soil and why, by the way, none of us thinks that this is us. And so the assumption here is that the soil was soft enough to receive the seed, that is, it truly received the gospel, And not only did it receive the gospel, but it was a soil that was rich and deep enough for roots to grow down deep, which, of course, means that there's a certain level of conviction over the truth of God's word, and so there's a staying power, so to speak, to this person's faith. And so they weren't knocked off by trial. Rather, they're a person who, in certain ways, or in many ways, lives a life guided by the conviction of the truth of what God has said. And so what happened is that the plant shot up where a certain kind of fruit was being produced. There was life there. There was evidence of faith. There was fruit. In other words, there was every reason to believe that this was good soil. Seems to be a person of genuine faith who has an authentically transformed heart. And yet in time, notice... There rose up around this fruit, around this face, so to speak, a certain element from that very same soil that choked out what appeared at first to be pure. Again, that is what makes it so difficult to discern. 
And so this is a person who had made a profession of faith. This is a person who had heard the gospel and received the gospel and even began to bear fruit in light of the gospel. But as time went on, it was choked out before that fruit was noticed, brought to a full maturity. End of verse 14. And that is critical to observe before it was brought to a full maturity. In other words, that implies that there was some maturation. It implies that the person was on a path of growth. And again, what makes this particular soil so challenging to recognize, there is a profession, there is a love for truth. There is a certain level of the person's life that conforms to the commands of Christ and the Word of God. There's a certain amount of fruit that is being produced. And all of this goes on for perhaps many, many years. In fact, notice how it's phrased. He says, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked out with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life. So they are very clearly walking down the path. They are on the way. And so as they walk along that way, there is fruit that is being born. They have learned the truth. They become to come to conform their life to that truth. There's perhaps a great hunger for the word of God and a desire to know God and a desire to know the deeper things of God and a desire to be faithful to all of his commands. Again, they know the truth. They're even willing to defend that truth and suffer for that truth. And so there is nothing superficial about this person. Again, unlike the shallow soil, their roots have grown deep. There's an abiding conviction over the word of God. There's a lot of passion for that word, a lot of passion for the purity of that word. And so they love the word of God and sound doctrine. Perhaps they're even a teacher of the word and become a leader within a particular local church. Their fruit grows tall. Everything about that person appears by all observation, to be authentic, and because it is a fruit, hear this, that is in conformity to the word. And yet as time goes on and their life carries forward, unbeknownst to them, there creeps up from within them this subtle pressure that begins to slowly wrap itself around that person's heart and begins to tighten down slowly but ever so consistently upon that faith before eventually choking it out. And so the key with this one is to notice that there is no debate as to the purity of the fruit. It is, from everything that you can see, a true fruit. It is a fruit in conformity to the Word. There's no issue with the fruit in and of itself. It starts out good. It appears good. But before it's brought to maturity, as he says, it's choked out by a heart that also begins to grow a love for the world. And so notice, he says it's choked out by thorns and weeds, which represent here the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life. And what's important to know about these categories is that every single one of them are really just neutral issues which is actually how they're able to creep up into our hearts without us really even recognizing them. In fact, that is why perhaps they are never ripped out before they strangle a person's faith. They appear in the beginning to be so harmless. In fact, the term here for worries is a term that is sometimes used to speak of anxiety, but here it's more the idea of concern or just simple distraction. Again, it's the idea of something morally neutral creeping in and Yet without recognizing it, it begins to pull you away from that which ought to be central. 
Sometimes it does result in anxiety because you become so concerned about a particular issue in your life. Sometimes it's being distracted by a problem or a struggle in your life, whether it's, it's your health, whether it's a family issue, whether it's something going on at work or a certain dream or desire that you have that's not, for whatever reason, coming to fruition. But whatever it is, it just has this way of slowly yet steadily beginning to consume you, and so it begins to choke out that faith within you. And so you may have started out strong and even produced a great crop of fruit at first, but the issues of life, whatever they may be, begin to strangle your faith. The other two here of riches and pleasures, these are fairly self-explanatory, but again, the challenge here is that riches and pleasures are not necessarily evil or sinful things in and of themselves. Rather, they're simply neutral and sometimes even in the beginning, good desires. But left unchecked with time will choke out that which matters. And why? Well, because they become all-consuming to you. There are many who come to a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and understand the gospel and show all kinds of promise and all kinds of fruit, but the problem is that abiding within their heart is a very great idol that comes to take first place. Perhaps you've seen people walk away from the faith because of a love for money or a love for certain pleasures that, again, wasn't necessarily something overtly sinful, but then with time and ever so subtly begin to squeeze that person of true faith. Perhaps it wasn't money or something material. Perhaps it was something like a relationship. There are many who know and understand that following Jesus means that they ought not to pursue a certain relationship any longer. It would do well to simply cut it off, but the problem is that their love for that person or that relationship proves itself ultimately to be of greater value than a love for Christ. There are many who probably should just pursue a different job or career and give up on that dream that they've been chasing. And again, it's not an evil thing in and of itself. It's just a neutral pursuit. And yet because it pays well or because it satisfies a personal desire or some kind of dream that they have, they pursue it anyway. And so it has caused them to make small but ever accumulating compromises. And so it begins to pull their heart away, begins to pull their desires away from Jesus Christ. There are many ways in which this one can work itself out. But again, what you should understand is that what makes this type of soil so difficult to discern is that growing from this soil is a kind of mixed produce. There is what appears to be good fruit, but at the same time, it is producing a crop of deadly thorns. And so what we do is we justify the thorns because we can still point to the fruit. And so we never rip it out of our lives. We never root it out of our lives because since we can point to what appears to be fruit, we conclude that our faith must therefore be authentic and that you can't fall away. And yet while we justify these noxious worldly weeds, they begin to slowly but inevitably tighten their grip Typically, professing Christians get into trouble more often than not, not with overt kinds of sin or because they're transgressing some kind of explicit command of Scripture, but we get into trouble with those morally neutral things of life that begin to slowly but increasingly pull on our hearts. 
Things like careers and money and hobbies and relationships. In fact, we usually know we're starting to get into trouble when we begin to ask the question, yeah, but what's wrong with it, right? And because, again, there is nothing in and of itself that's inherently wicked about this thing. It's just a morally neutral desire. But what we should be asking is not what's wrong with it, but what is right about it? What is virtuous about this pursuit? What is it about this pursuit or decision that is causing my affections and my obedience to grow for Jesus Christ? That is the question. And because since it is a morally neutral reality, you will always hear this. You will always be able to justify as to why nothing is wrong with it. We are masters at rationalization, and so we can baptize just about any pursuit of life and make it appear as holy and put some kind of twist on it that can satisfy our conscience. And yet all the while, all you're doing is simply justifying perhaps an idol within your heart. And so as you spend your time rationalizing the state of your garden as opposed to weeding that garden and ridding your life of that which seeks to choke out the faith and the true fruit, one day you realize that as you've grown numb and cold towards the things of Christ, you just conclude that you never really believed that in the first place. Or worse, you perhaps delude yourself into believing that you somehow still do and that you'll just get around to getting more serious later. And so this is a helpful reminder, I think, to remind us that we would be wise to proactively analyze those neutral areas and pursuits of our lives constantly to determine as to whether or not they're simply idols of the heart. In fact, a simple test is to ask yourself as to whether or not something is an idol is, so when was the last time that you gave thanks to God for whatever it is that you're pursuing? In fact, a classic definition is to ask yourself, is this something that causes me to sin when I get it, or is it something that causes me to sin when I don't get it? Either one of those is a sign and always a helpful test to discern if your pursuit is pure. And so this is the thorny soil. This is a soil that has both good fruit and bad fruit, but the inevitable conclusion is the bad fruit choking out the good fruit. And again, it's a slow process and subtle and therefore extremely difficult to detect. And so again, three different responses to the gospel. You've got the hardened soil that immediately rejects the gospel, which is the majority of people. You've got the shallow soil, which receives the gospel with immediate joy, but because it has no root or firm conviction that is grounded in the word of God, when that day of trial and testing comes, they fall away. And then you have the thorny soil, which is the hardest to detect because this is a heart that produces what appears to be fruit, but is mixed with all kinds of impurities that eventually choke out your faith. And so that then leads us here to the good soil, verse 15. Notice this is the good soil. He states here, but the seed is the good soil, the seed is the good soil, In the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, there are several components to the good soil. And of course, this is talking here now about the genuine or authentic Christian. 
This is one whose heart is pure and possesses a truly transformed heart, and so it is a soil that produces a pure crop. And so notice, this is a person who first hears the word, but hears it, as he says, in an honest and good heart. And so unlike the previous two soils who've also sought to hear the word, this is a person who sought to hear the truth, but from a perspective of genuinely wanting to understand and apply that truth. In fact, contrast that with the crowd here that Jesus has been talking to who are coming to him because they want to see if his message will conform to the message that they want to hear. But the one who comes and hears with an honest and pure heart, this is a person who wants to hear the truth regardless of what that truth will now require of them. In fact, Paul warns of those who will surround themselves and accumulate for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. That is to say that they will surround themselves with people who will consistently bring to them a message that they desire to hear. But a person who's a genuine seeker of the truth doesn't want their ears to be tickled. Rather, they want to know the truth because they want to know what God has truly said and what God has therefore truly required of any true disciple. They want to know the path of true salvation, but also know how to persevere on that path. And so Jesus says, first of all, the true disciple and truly converted soul is not a person who argues with the truth or wants to debate the truth or wants to rationalize and justify their way out of having to obey the truth, but a truly converted soul comes and hears notice from an honest and good heart. Again, there are many who will accept the message of the gospel because they want to be saved. But once they start learning what Jesus has actually required of a true disciple and how he requires that you begin to put off sin and you begin to pursue a true holiness so that you become increasingly conformed into the image of Jesus Christ himself, it is not long before many abandon that path. In fact, notice verse 15, not only will they hear the truth and desire the truth and seek to wrestle with the truth in an honest and pure way, but they will also, as he says, hold fast to it. That is to say that they will actually obey what Jesus commands of them, not once in a while, not when it's convenient, but in a consistent way that perseveres. It is one thing to say with your mouth that you believe something, but it is another thing to hold to it fastidiously. In fact, this is the idea of actually developing some convictions over what is true and then orienting your life and your decisions under those convictions. This is one who clings to the truth always, regardless of the consequences. They're willing to do hard things and honor the desires of Christ, regardless of what it may cost them. And so in this case, it is the truth of God's word that always informs their decisions and desires and various pursuits. They don't pick and choose how they'll live and what commands of Christ they want to follow. Rather, they understand that they are to bring the totality of their life into a full submission of what Christ has commanded. And so it is his word that now informs their pursuits of all of those neutral things of life. And so unlike the hardened soil, this is a person who hears and receives. That is to say, it actually penetrates. Unlike the shallow soil, they hear the word in an honest and good heart and hold to it fast. This wasn't about experience. This wasn't about some kind of emotional encounter. Rather, this was a genuine wrestling with the truth, and therefore they're able to hold to that truth with conviction. 
And then unlike the thorny soil, they also bear fruit, verse 15, but they bear it, bear it notice again, with perseverance. That is to say, this is a fruit that lasts. That phrase there, with perseverance, is critically important. I am never impressed, and you should never be impressed, with a person's mere profession of faith or what they seem to produce for a while. It is always a joyful thing and a wonderful thing to see someone come to faith and have the opportunity to baptize them and begin to watch them learn and grow and get excited about the things of God and want to be discipled in the Word. But just so you understand how my mind works as a pastor, I never assume anything until a person either dies or Jesus Christ returns. And you should never assume anything until a person dies or Jesus Christ returns. And because it doesn't matter how much you know, doesn't matter the precision of your theology, doesn't matter how good of a church you go to, doesn't matter how many people that you yourself bring to faith, it doesn't matter your excitement, your conviction, your passion, doesn't even matter how much seeming fruit your life produces or you find yourself in all kinds of leadership positions within the church, my only concern is will you finish your life and race still believing? That is the question. My only concern is, will you continue in that faith bearing fruit? Again, I read for you, as I did last week, Colossians chapter 1 and verses 21 through 23. And notice this all-important conditional statement at the end. We usually read up to the conditional statement. Paul states there, starting in 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Sounds pretty good. But then here it is, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard. Well, Jesus and Paul were under no delusion that there wouldn't be many who would accept the saving message of the gospel, but in the end, prove themselves to be false. Many want salvation, many want heaven, and so there will be many who will accept that message of salvation, but will they run that race of conforming their life into the image of Jesus Christ and then finish that race? That is the question. Or will at the sign of trial and sign of hardship or presence of worries and anxieties and pleasures, neutral pursuits, and the lure of many kinds of riches and activities pull them away from the hope of the gospel. There are many who I thought would have abandoned the faith but have remained, and there are many who I thought would have remained that have abandoned. You never really know until it works itself out, but I am under no delusion that anyone will finish until they finish. And neither should you. But there is so much rocky and thorny soil within the church. 
If you are truly his, you will finish. I believe in all my heart in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but you won't fully know you are his until you finish. And so it is a wise person who does not assume that because they made a profession or had some kind of experience long ago or even see a tremendous amount of fruit being produced in their life, that that is somehow a guarantee of heaven. The question is, did you receive that word in an honest and pure heart? That is, did you receive the message of the gospel that you are a guilty sinner who stands condemned before a righteous and holy God? And that you in and of yourself had zero hope of heaven because you were a wretchedly depraved sinner, as the scriptures declare is true of every single person who's ever lived. And so you realize that what you needed was the perfectly righteous life of another to be applied to your account as you stand before your maker and judge. And so you heard of Jesus Christ. You heard that he was the son of God, born of a virgin, came and lived a perfect life in your place that he was crucified by the hands of ungodly men, and that as he hung on a cross, he took upon himself the full weight of your sin. And as he hung there, the Father poured out his righteous wrath and executed his holy and just wrath for your sin, but in the body of his Son. And so he was crucified in your place, and he died that death that you should have died. Yet three days later, he rose again, showing his victory over power and power over sin and Satan and death, and after which he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where right now he sits in glory and one day will come back to judge both the living and the dead. And so you heard that, and so the result is that you now have hope of resurrection. You have hope of new life. You have hope of eternal pardon of your sin as you stand before your judge because you understand by faith that Jesus took that penalty of your sin for you. And it was all of grace, undeserved, unmerited. But the question is, have you received that message with an honest and pure heart and refused to presume upon that message? And then have you come to believe that it is not enough for you to merely say with your mouth that you believe that message, but will you hold it fast until the end? And are you right now one who lets the word of God define every aspect of your life so that you submit all of your desires and all of your decisions, even those morally neutral ones, those ones where there might not be anything inherently evil about them, but they could pull you away, and could hinder your growth, and could hinder your witness, and could hinder your effectiveness for the gospel, and ultimately hinder your ability to persevere. You submit every aspect of your life and every decision of life that you make under the word of God to be analyzed and scrutinized and then conform to that word. So what is it about your life? Just answer the question in an honest way. But is there a person or a pursuit, or a desire, or a distraction in your life right now that you are unwilling to let go of for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are you like the disciples in chapters 5 through 7 who, when called to follow, were willing to leave everything, as he says, to follow him? 
What do you think about? What captures your affections? What do you lay in bed at night pondering? And because Jesus says, and you know this, that no one can serve two masters. And so he will not compete with the idols of your heart. He is, as the scriptures say, a very jealous God, and he will not share his glory with another. And that is a holy and righteous jealousy, and because if you are his, he has purchased you for himself, but at great cost to himself in the death of his son. And so he will not share your heart with some idol. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15, verse 15, the apostle there states, he commands actually, do not love the world nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, hear this, the love of the Father is not in him. Truth. And notice, these things are mutually exclusive. Love for the Father pushes out a love for the world, and a love for the world necessarily pushes out a love for the Father. Some of you wonder why your love is fading or growing cold, or you feel yourself growing numb to the things of Christ and the gospel and have lost that passion that you once had. What are the morally neutral things in your life that are competing with the love for the Father? Because you can't have both. In fact, these are black and white categories by John. Either you love the Father or you love the world. But there is no such thing here in the mind of John as having mostly a love for the Father or even having some love for the Father. And why? Because you cannot serve two masters. And what you love is what you serve. And so where there is a presence of thorns and worldly weeds, they will choke out a love for Christ every single time. And so your only option is to uproot them, which is what John here means when he commands, do not love the world. He means to get rid of them, cut them out of your life immediately. Yeah, but what's wrong with them? That's not the question. Rather, what is it about them that is right now helping you love Christ more? What is it that is virtuous and good about them in terms of causing you to persevere in the faith? How does the pursuit of that desire, that relationship, or taking that promotion, or using your time with that particular hobby, whatever it might be, how is that right now producing fruit for you? Because Jesus says, if you are faithful, you will produce fruit. Well, it doesn't cause me not to produce fruit. Again, that is not the issue. The question is, how does it help you produce fruit? And if it doesn't, then you'd be wise to pull it out. Thorny weeds never look very destructive at first, just soft little leafy things pushing up out of the ground. But weeds are tremendously invasive, and gone and checked long enough, they will extinguish and choke out all life. 
So again, I say to you that this is a parable for the professing Christian. Four different soils, but only two kinds of hearts. You have the bad heart, you have the good heart. And every single one of us is in one of these. So what do you believe this morning? What do you, who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? And who do you believe yourself to be before him? And what do you understand to be your purpose as a person who professes faith in this world? That is the most important question that you could ever ask, and because your eternal state depends on your answer. And so for those of you who have made a profession, which I believe is the majority of you in this room, where do you find yourself within this parable? If you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that there will always be ebbs and flows in terms of passion and faithfulness and even in fruitfulness. But in those seasons of apathy, which will come for any true Christian, the mark of the truly converted heart is that they will always persevere. But it's also in those times in which the genuine Christian understands that there may be certain things within their life that they need to make go away. Because God uses means for you to persevere. There are certain morally neutral things that the authentic Christian realizes must be rooted out from time to time. And so you'd be wise to examine yourself to figure out what perhaps needs to go away in your life under the glory of God. Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, do all things to the glory of God. Sometimes that doing is the process of subtracting. Sometimes it's not figuring out how you can still hold on to this and be a fruitful Christian. Sometimes you just need to root out the weed if you are to be a fruitful Christian. And nobody knows what that is in your life except for you. And if you don't know what it is, pray that the Lord might reveal it to you. Some of you want to be fruitful, but you can't because you've still got a bunch of unseen weeds right now. And fruit will only grow when those weeds stop strangling things. And so the call of this passage is to, again, examine yourself. Have you received the gospel from a pure and honest heart? Do you hold it fast with conviction? Do you seek to bring every aspect of your life under the word of God? Are you one who is right now producing fruit with perseverance? And if so, then you have very great reason for assurance. It is the one who endures trial. It is the one who stands fast in the face of worldly temptation. And it is the one who produces fruit in a consistent way that has every reason to rejoice. So where do you find yourself this morning? That is the question. And again, that is the most important question that you could ever ask. And so to which soil do you belong? That is the question I leave you with this morning.